You're listening to podcasts from the Congressional Internet Caucus Advisory Committee, www.netcaucus.org. Uh, the name of the panel is called Encryption, Balancing Privacy, Security, and Law Enforcement Needs. It's basically an encryption issue. A lot of it's happening in the press. We're probably all aware of this. Um, so we have a great panel of you know, some issues um, at, at play, um, both on the House and Senate, the courts, and elsewhere. Um, I will also note that timing-wise, last night, um, uh, the House Energy and Commerce Committee and the House Judiciary Committee, uh, Chairman Goodlatte, um, uh, released the, uh, a notice about putting uh, together encryption working group. Apple should be compelled to um, 
to assist law enforcement uh, under the under the broad All Writs Act, and Apple actually pushed back and said, "No, we don't think we should." So the court never even granted an order. So the Justice Department is now pushing, is now appealing on that and trying to get the, the, the court to actually give the order to Apple in, in that specific case. Um, but the issue of encryption is much bigger than just the, uh, the issue of uh, in, encrypted phones. Um, uh, really, I mean, this goes back you know, really you know, a few decades even, but a few years ago with the Edward Snowden revelations, more and more companies began to move toward encryption, whether it was encrypted uh, phones or whether it was encrypted um, uh, apps, encrypted you know, communications. And um, that has presented a lot of challenges for law enforcement. Um, so more and more companies that have been moving toward giving their users and, and customers control of the encryption, and some companies that don't even keep information about their users. And, um, and so that brings us to where we are today, with, uh, with um, a very, uh, very public battle that's taking place right now between law enforcement and the technology community and the privacy community. And so, um, so we're very thrilled to have uh, the expert panel, the, the panel of experts that we have to discuss this issue. And I just wanted to um, open it up by asking Matt, maybe just to explain just briefly you know, what encryption is and why it's so important. And then we'll go to Richard to, to talk about the challenge that law enforcement or faith is facing with encryption and kind of the legal process that, that law enforcement uses in order to go after encrypted data. And then, uh, then we'll turn to Susan Kelly to talk about the uh, legal policy issues that are, that are uh, underlying these issues. So, Matt? Okay, uh, so uh, my name is Matthew Green. I'm a professor of computer science at Johns Hopkins. Sorry about that. Um, I happen to study a very esoteric field, which many people didn't think about very much, and all of a sudden has now become national news. You hear about it in presidential debates, which is very strange for me. Uh, I study applied cryptography, which is the study of essentially taking information, uh, transforming it to forms that are, in many cases, much more challenging for people to read, uh, and then, in some cases, transforming them back. Um, the area that I've been focusing on over the last several years is end-to-end -end encryption. Now, I want to give a very brief explanation of what encryption is and why end-to-end -end encryption is special before we go on with this panel. Um, we have had encryption in our systems for many years. In fact, you've used encryption dozens of times today, whether you knew it or not. If we shut down encryption on the Internet or on our cellular networks or payment systems, pretty much society as we know it would stop functioning. So nobody is here to debate whether encryption is a good thing or not. Um, however, in the last several years, a few things have changed. One of those things is that we have now developed portable devices like this one that give us the ability to actually uh, perform encryption directly end-to-end -end from myself to my friends. I can encrypt a message so that only my, myself and my friend can read it. Or even just for myself to myself. I can encrypt my phone using a passcode so that I'm the only person who can decrypt that phone. And so this is actually, you know, the technology, the mathematics behind this has been known for years. You can buy a book that gives the algorithms for doing this. But what's changed is all of a sudden in the last several years, people are actually starting to use this technology at reasonably high rates. So the question, obviously, that we're running into now is now that this technology, which has been around for years, is being used by 50% of the world instead of maybe 2% of the privacy enthusiasts in the world, what should we do about this? What, what exactly, you know, how safe is it for individuals to have the ability to send each other messages without law enforcement and other intermediaries being able to read them? Um, 
Up until recently, and I'm not a lawyer here, I'm the least, uh, least legally trained person here, but uh, the, the belief was that encryption was kind of unstoppable, that it was math. There was nothing you could do to stop it. People would implement it themselves. If you tried to stop it, you'd basically be holding back innovation. And so in the 1990s, when we had a version of this debate, the ultimate conclusion was that, well, let's, let's let people de develop and deploy encryption, and we'll see what happens. The results were mostly good. Now we're having essentially a, a, a redo of this argument. Now that encryption is not 2%, but 60% but of the, the world, we're having an argument about whether we've made a mistake. Uh, the last thing that I kind of want to say before I, I kick off the rest of this panel is that the real question here, the technological question that interests me, is whether it's actually possible to deploy encryption in a form that allows other intermediaries to read it. Uh, this is one of the biggest challenges. There's, there's a political debate to be had here, but there's also a technological debate. Encryption is designed to protect information. If I deploy encryption in a form that allows somebody else to read it, it's not really encryption anymore. And so the question is, can I build secure phones? Can I build secure messaging systems that actually allow law enforcement to intercept without also allowing criminals to do the same? So far as technologists, we don't really know how to do this, which is why the current debate over the legality of encryption is so challenging to us. Um, but, you know, we'd like to hear proposals for doing it, at least from law enforcement and from others in Congress, before we kind of roll this out. So I hope, hope that this is a good explanation or introduction to the problem. Richard? Um, yeah, go ahead. So uh, what I would like to um, talk a little bit about is the um, impact that this has on law enforcement activities and the mission that we have in order to try to solve crimes, bring people to justice, and keep the public safe. Um, what, uh, this comes up in two forms in general. Um, as Mr. Uh, Green was referring to, there's sometimes stored devices that um, uh, are at rest, so called dead at rest, uh, where we need to get access to that for purposes of investigation. And sometimes it comes up in the form of data in motion, that is, intercepting communications that are happening between two different people. The way we come up with an investigation, most generally, is that law enforcement would obtain a search warrant in order to access that uh, data, let's say it's at rest. It's a stored device that somehow comes into the hands of law enforcement. And the steps that those are gone through is that the, the uh, officer would write a long affidavit that explains to the court the reasons for the need to go into the phone. Uh, he has to establish what's called probable cause, so a significant burden to prove that this is indeed a place where evidence will be located. It's the standard that they would use to uh, obtain a search warrant to enter someone's home. Um, that application is then brought first to a prosecutor and then to a court, usually a magistrate judge in the federal system. And the magistrate judge, who is not involved in the investigation, reviews the facts and decides whether, on balance, it is appropriate for the government to have access to that information. This is, of course, the long system that we've had in this country for uh, centuries. It's controlled by the Constitution, and uh, in the case of interceptions, there's even more layers added on top of that, including uh, the approval of a very senior person within the Department of Justice. Um, you have to show the court that you try everything else since it's the last resort. And even after that, there are what are called minimization rules, which means that you have to cull out material that is not relevant to the investigation. So the question is, at the end of this process, where a judge has made this ruling and decided that it is appropriate to get access to that stuff, um, will the evidence be available to 
to the government, to the law enforcement officer at that point, and whether the Christian is the thing that will block it. And I think what's, um, this is all sort of useful and abstract in a way, but I think it's useful to think about particular examples of how this would come up so that we can really think hard about the costs that are being imposed as a result of these encryption decisions. Um, I, by no means, intend this to be any sort of scare tactic, but it's practical and it's real and we have to think about it. So, for example, the FBI director was recently discussing a case of a homicide involving a woman named Brittany Mills. She was 29 years old. She was eight months pregnant. She was answered the door one day and was shot to death on the doorstep. Uh, the police could find very little physical evidence. There were no eyewitnesses. Her nine-year-old daughter was upstairs, heard the shots, but didn't see anyone. And because she opened the door, there's some reason to believe there might be somebody that she knows. Uh, and then looked at who she had been texting and figured out that indeed there were certain people that she had been texting that day, which might be suspect, but none of them stood out as being particularly relevant. But the family notified the officers that were doing the investigation that she had a diary and she had it on her phone. And so access to the phone is going to be particularly relevant because it's likely that there will be evidence there that will give you some clue about where who is responsible. Was the phone backed up to the cloud? Yes, three months before. So not helpful. And so this is the situation that's being faced. And at this point, the investigating officers do not have access to the phone and the case is unsolved. Now, one question is, well, is this just a unique case? And the answer is absolutely not. Um, in fact, I would argue quite the opposite. How could this not be absolutely critical evidence in many, many cases across the country? The Supreme Court has said, for example, the contents of our phone is in some ways more um, illuminating than the contents of our houses. Um, and indeed, uh, there are literally thousands of phones that have received in criminal investigations that are currently unable to be opened. Sometimes we'll hear the phrase, golden age of surveillance possible. Don't worry if you, you don't have access to this phone, or don't panic in the name one of the reports that was done here. There's going to be lots of other ways, such as metadata. You can figure out who's talking to whom, and that would be important and useful information that will take the place of the same information that was done at the force of golden encryption. I think, A, I don't really think that's true, but B, this case really illustrates why that's not going to work. When you need evidence in a case, you need it in this case. And it doesn't really help, but we might be able to solve another murder in another state. This case doesn't have that attribute, and so we need this particular evidence here. It's also interesting that um, we often hear about this in terms of the uh, San Bernardino case, of course, uh, prominent federal case with um, terrorism component to it. Um, but really, in some ways, the state and local investigators are the ones that are taking the biggest hit on this because so much of what they do is going to involve regular stuff like obtaining evidence from the iPhone. So what I would like to pose as a question that the panel should be discussing and that I would offer is something that you should be thinking about as you think through these questions is, relatively speaking, what drop in security would result from us having a lawful access solution, a, a mandate, for example, to require the ability to get into that? What is the relative drop in security of our devices on this side? And what is the relative harm to public safety and the system of justice on this side? That's the key question. Nobody's saying that we shouldn't have encryption. In fact, as we pointed out, we 
do it all the time. The government supports strong encryption across the board. That's a good thing. The question, though, is, is the drop in the, uh, the security of our devices as a result of having a lawful access solution worth the cost over here? So I think that's a valid question, a valid policy question, and I hope we get to uh, some interesting discussion on this before. Um, Susan, can, can you weigh in on how you view the, legal, the major legal policy issues surrounding this and um, into the degree if you can uh, respond to what Richard was saying about how the issue of metadata and other investigative <coughs> techniques aren't necessarily an offset for not being able to access encrypted communication? Right. So. I, I sort of approach this issue as fundamentally a question of our system of governance. Um, and so th the way I sort of think about it is um, we make these preliminary decisions. Whenever I say we, I mean all of us, right? We have a founding document, and then our courts sort of decide, uh, our, our legislature creates a set of laws, and then our courts decide how those laws apply. Um, and that's the place in which we typically uh, or have traditionally uh, dictated what the scope of our privacy, what our relationship with our government is supposed to look like. And um, we're all empowered to set that sort of bar wherever we want to. Um, and that's one sort of discussion um, to sort of to set to the side, right? What is the appropriate scope of, of privacy? What is that appropriate relationship? Um, then there's sort of uh, working out the details. Um, so it's not possible to sort of perfectly tailor lawful access to uh, the scope of the Fourth Amendment. That wasn't possible before encryption. It's not possible now. Um, that said, I think what we're seeing now is sort of um, uh, a phenomenon that is really challenging uh, the way we've gone about making these decisions, which is that uh, we've sort of we've set the scope of privacy. Uh, our courts have um, have come down and will continue to evolve, but have come down where they where they are and on questions of probable cause and, and um, requirements for a warrant. Um, and now we're uh, we're facing a situation in which technology is exceeding those choices, um, and so we're faced with another choice. Um, we can either say, no, 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 um, we make those choices, and we understand um, that we might have to make, uh, we might have to sacrifice certain things in order to retain that sort of core power, um, or we can say, no, we actually, um, we believe in uh, the values of information security, or we want the free flow of, um, of innovation, or we believe that there are economic benefits, and therefore we want this technology to sort of move uh, unimpeded by regulation. Um, and so I think that the, the sort of important thing here is to, um, to recognize that there are these multiple uh, threads. There's the thread of uh, sort of the technical question. Um, there is the legal debate about how our current laws, uh, what the scope of our current laws can and should do. Um, and then we have a policy debate about sort of um, whether or not those laws are a good or bad idea um, as sort of a larger regulatory matter. Um, it's hard to have those conversations simultaneously by, by, while keeping them sort of intellectually distinct. I think it's why the issue becomes so incredibly confusing for so many people. Um, but that's what I sort of view as kind of the core challenge here. Um, Kevin, is it, is it either or? I mean, can you have encryption and still provide law enforcement with the information that they need for legitimate court order investigations? In all cases, no. Sorry. In all cases, no. Um, I want to talk about the policy question that's been raised here, uh, and, and uh, I like how Richard talked about it in, in terms of costs versus benefits. Um, this debate about whether or not the government, whether the courts or Congress or anyone else, 
should be able to mandate that companies design their products in a way to ensure government access when the government comes knocking. Is often framed as a debate between security versus privacy. Susan did a little bit of that just now. Um, I think that is a false frame that marginalizes the costs we would be looking at at some sort of mandatory uh, lawful access regime or exceptional access regime or what would colloquially be called backdoors. Um, when it comes to the balance, to the costs and the benefits, I agree with former NSA and Director of National Intelligence, NSA Director and Director of National Intelligence Mike McConnell, former NSA and CIA Director Michael Hayden, former DHS Secretary Michael Chertoff, former CIA Director Michael Morrell, and a whole bunch of people not named Michael, like uh, <laughs> former White House anti-terrorism czar Richard Clark, current Department of Defense Secretary Ash Carter, uh, and many others, that ultimately we are safer thanks to the proliferation of strong encryption technologies, including end-to-end -end encryption technology, including full-disk encryption technology like that seen on smartphones. Um, this is apparently the view in the current intelligence community as well, based on Lindsey Graham, who recently changed his position on this issue, uh, where he was supporting and now does not support backdoors, based on discussions, he says, with the intelligence community. And I think if you scratch the surface, other agencies in the administration as well, such as the Commerce Department, which is concerned about the impact on the economy, Federal Trade Commission, that's concerned about the impact on consumer security, the State Department that is concerned about human rights and the security of uh, dissidents in other countries share many of the same concerns but are seemingly less willing than the FBI is to go beyond the administration's stated position that this is a complex issue and they're not seeking legislation than the FBI feels able to do. But I would say that this position that we are safer thanks to encryption ultimately uh, is shared by, essentially, the unanimous technology industry, the security research community, privacy advocates, because privacy is a part of it, um, the human rights community, and the civil rights community. This is because this is not a privacy versus security issue. This is a security versus security issue, and in fact, it is an issue of law enforcement need in some particular cases, versus our overall digital cybersecurity, the security of our digital ecosystem and our digital infrastructure and our critical infrastructure, our security against hackers and identity thieves and spies, uh, both foreign intelligence agencies and economic. There's a physical threat as well that encryption fights. Encryption is a defense against the muggers who want to steal your phone. If all phones were by default encrypted, that would not be a profitable crime. Right now, it is our most common street crime. It defends the abused wife from being beaten because of the texts found on her phone by her husband. It protects the dissident in countries that respect human rights less than us from being tortured and killed based on what is found on their phone or what is in the instant messages that they send that are not encrypted. Um, so I want to look at the costs and the benefits. I think there are enormous benefits 
from the widespread deployment of encryption. There are enormous costs to trying to break that. And I don't think there's an enormous benefit from trying to break that. If you look at the risk, the biggest risks, the one that is cited the most often, which is the threat of terrorists using encrypted applications to communicate with each other, U.S. regulation will do nothing to prevent that. There are, in fact, we wrote a report on this, it's called The Crypto Cat is Out of the Bag, where we looked at the top nine applications that are recommended purportedly by ISIS. Eight of the nine are either from foreign-based companies, applications like Telegram or Threema, which are based in Berlin, in Switzerland, if I recall correctly, uh, respectively, or are from open source code that no one owns, that is freely available. And indeed, jihadists have coded their own encryption applications. U.S. companies do not have a monopoly on this technology. It is essentially math, and we cannot stop math. What we can do through bad regulation is undermine our own cybersecurity and our own safety. So I, I, I would like to talk about the costs and benefits, and ultimately I would love to talk about that particular murder case, which is from my hometown in Baton Rouge. Um, and I'd love to talk about the Feinstein Burr bill, which I think should be the center of the conversation at this point. Um, so, so we've heard uh, the, um, the arguments for why encryption is so important, but also you know, the, the challenges that law enforcement is facing. Um, and I want to ask all of you, um, so what should be done at this point? Uh, obviously, there's calls for creating a commission to look into this issue, and, and all of you or any one of you could actually be on that commission. So um, I want to give you a on that. But, um, Richard, I just want to ask you uh, just kind of a um, uh, immediate question about uh, the FBI director said yesterday that the um, uh, that the FBI has spent more than he makes. He'll make it all of his salary to, to buy the hacking tool to get into the uh, to get into Fruit's iPhone, um, which is uh, more than one point three million dollars. And so, you know, paying more than a million dollars for a hacking tool, um, you know, that's a lot of money, obviously. Um, was it worth it? What, what, what value was gleaned from being able to get into that phone? So um, I can't talk about the particular phone, and the investigation is still ongoing, so I'm not in a position to talk specifically about that. But I think your point raises, raises a particular instance of the inevitable uh, result of having end-to-end encryption without any lawful access solution, which is that um, there are going to have to be efforts made to solve these problems the public safety and the national security issues are going to have to be addressed. And so there will be um, a desire on the part of the government to purchase, even at quite a great expense, the ability to access these phones in order to keep people safe. Um, is this the world we want to live in where um, there is a market for vulnerability that is built around the idea of this, uh, the need for access to these devices? Um, is it, uh, if there was a lawful access to this Device, there would be no incentive for the government to hide this vulnerability from Apple. In fact, they likely have to turn it over in order to get everyone's phone to be safer. So um, I think it's an interesting offshoot of this whole question of if we restrict something here, inevitably there's going to be implications in other places um, that may not have been predicted. Matt, is it, is it possible to uh, actually design a system that can have strong encryption with access? 
I mean, the thing you need to understand is that a warrant is not some kind of mathematical cryptographic o- object. It's a, it's a piece of paper. And ultimately, you take that piece of paper to a human being who sits in front of a computer and then types in something after seeing that that unlocks your phone or unlocks your messages. Now, the question is not whether that warrant was lawfully obtained. Of course, let's assume that it was. The question is, is that person and that system that they're typing into, is that thing secure? Because if they can enter the ability to unlock your phone, then anybody who accesses that person or accesses that system can also do it. And this isn't theoretical. Excuse me. Uh, We know that in 2009, uh, the wiretapping systems that are located in Google's network were compromised, presumably by the Chinese. I think that's the understanding. We know that very recently, Juniper Networks, uh, which is a company that did not have a built-in lawful access system, but had built a system very close to that in the sense that there was a backdoor in their system that was... Uh, essentially, uh, it was repurposed by hackers. So we know that hackers are looking for these vulnerabilities. Now, just, just to address something that Richard just said. Yes, you're right. There are people out there looking for vulnerabilities, and the FBI is hiring those people. And that makes me a little bit sad. But at the same time, the solution to that is not to introduce new vulnerabilities. Because for every new opening you add, you add three new inadvertent flaws, just like the one that was exploited on the Farouk iPhone. And maybe sometimes that's good, maybe sometimes that gives the FBI access, but a lot of the time it gives other people access, and these are not people we want accessing our systems. Chris, can I yeah. make a couple of points here? One is that you've heard various of us talk about the word backdoor. Um, that's one of those words that until fairly recently meant um, a, a surreptitious backdoor that isn't available to the ordinary person that's written by the programmer. Very recently, did that word come to become the majority of an ability for the government to access something? So I'll just put that in as a little bit of a, a, a footnote here. Um, if backdoor means the ability to access um, information that's stored on a system, that means necessarily that when a company builds in a system on their laptops or their iPhones to allow them to get into that employee's phone if they happen to decide or get hit by bus or whatever, then they've introduced that back door into the system. Uh, similarly, if a webmail provider accesses your email in order to be able to sell ads for you, even if they encrypted between you and that provider, and even if it's encrypted on the device, then that's a back door for these purposes. And so I guess I would say in this question, is it possible to encrypt, uh, to create a lawful access solution here um, that would be indeed quite secure? Um, and what drop in security that results from not introducing such a thing? I suspect that's a pretty small difference. Um, big companies introduce this backdoor all the time. Um, in fact, Apple sells a system called mobile device management, which is built exactly for this purpose, to allow employers to control the devices of their employees. Um, having the ability to look at that data also allows for better selling of ads, and better blocking of spam, and better restrictions on malware. So um, the, the fact that there are a very small handful of instances where there is a, um, a lawful access solution that has been um, attacked is hardly a reason to say we should just cross all this out. This is a vulnerability that is introduced all the time for practical, useful reasons like data recovery and selling ads. 
And if it's good enough for that, I think the benefits that we are seeing should be good enough also for protecting public safety and solving crimes. Put another way, there's, it's not as if we're going from 100% security down to 50% as a result of putting this back door. I don't know what the exact numbers are, but it's, I would submit to you pretty small because we do it all the time. Companies do it all the time in order to do that. And how do we, we're not dealing with 100% security anyway. We, Semantic report last year says we're getting one new zero day vulnerability every week. It's a little bit like we have a house uh, which has a front door that's locked, but we leave all the windows open. And if you're worried about burglary, do you uh, worry about whether the front door has a good solid deadbolt uh, while the windows are open, or do you want a retina scan on that thing? Um, this is the drop here is the question, not whether encryption is a good thing. We all agree encryption is a good thing. Um, so, uh, just let me respond to that. Um, I mean, I, I find it odd to argue that because there is no perfect security, it's okay to therefore reduce security further. Um, and also, I, I think we've been using the term backdoor for mandated government access that would otherwise not be built into a product since at least the 90s. So it's not a, it's not a new thing. But I, I want to respond especially to an argument uh, in, implicit in, in what Richard said. Richard noted, for example, that a lot of us use email that is encrypted to the server between us and the service, like Gmail, um, but uh, is not encrypted end-to-end between us and the person we're communicating with. Um, and I think the argument there is, well, why can't everything be like that? If that is secure enough, why can't we just have no iMessages or WhatsApps and just have everything be architected like Facebook messages or Gmail. Yes, uh, that is a somewhat reasonably secure mode of communication, but it is certainly less secure. As anyone who works at Sony will tell you, I bet the people at Sony wish that they had used secure end-to-end messaging for much more of their communications, which would have eliminated the risk of someone breaking into their system and exfiltrating their emails. I bet that the many uh, young women who had their uh, naked photos stolen off of iCloud and posted to the public web would have, in hindsight, preferred to have had access to fully encrypted end-to-end communications. Um, the FBI director has framed this as a business model choice, saying that, well, these companies are just choosing to have a business model that is more secure because I guess they're, they're, they're just money growers or something, rather than companies offering a range of security for a range of types of communications, which I think is wholly appropriate and important. There are going to be services that you want that can't be affected if you have an, an encryption. It's harder to search your stuff. It's harder to get spam filtering. It's harder for them to give you a free service to serve uh, by serving ads against it. But that doesn't mean that all communications products ever should be reduced to that level of security. I think that would be a very bad result for our security. And I think it would be a very bad result for our economic security if U.S. products were all made to do that. And then you would see foreign companies and foreign countries swooping in and serving that need for more secure solutions in a way that U.S. regulation will not reach. Um, and just a little bit, I want to put this up to questions from the audience as well, but I'm going to ask Susan and Matt, um, you know, to respond to anything that you've heard, but, but also, is, is part of this just a losing battle, just the way technology is going, that you have, you have more and more companies that 
choose to design their systems that don't provide any kind of access, and to try to tell them that they retroactively have to build access in is something that is not really not really feasible. But anyway, they can be one of the problems. So I think one of the real perils here is whenever um, we attempt to oversimplify tremendously complex both problems and potential solutions. Um, Kevin is sort of responding to the notion, I, I think, sort of put forward by the Burr-Feinstein legislation of, okay, um, we'll have sort of a performance standard, and everybody will have to find some way to, to produce, um, you know, intelligible data. Um, there's a huge, there's a full spectrum of options here. Um, so there's uh, sort of the lawful hacking, which um, is... is uh, a bit of what we saw uh, in the San Bernardino case, right? The FBI either uh, uh, originally attempting to get the uh, companies to assist them in, in hacking the devices, then going to the open market, right? So that's sort of that's one potential area that we might we might go down that path. That might make sense. Um, you know, we might go down um, uh, we might go down a performance standard path, and there might be good or bad reasons for doing that. And, and I'm sure that we are certainly seeing um, a robust presentation of, of some of the negatives there. Um, there's also the possibility that we do nothing, um, but it would be uh, wrong to believe that that somehow meant that uh, there was no trade-off there, or that the trade-off was purely one of, um, of uh, information security. I actually fully agree with Kevin. This is not an issue of privacy versus security. It's an issue of security versus security, different types of security. Um, the problem is, is that we tend to see, as a normative matter, um, sort of an equilibrium in terms of how these things work. Um, so if technology ends up uh, vastly sort of um, altering the landscape in which ordinary law enforcement operates, and I would suggest that ordinary law enforcement um, has a different set of equities than, for example, the intelligence community. Um, if we do nothing, then we're liable. To, we're likely to see um, pressures uh, come to bear in other areas, like on Fifth Amendment protections. Um, we're likely to see courts say things like, "You can be compelled to put in your password or your thumbprint," right? And so we really have to be um, thoughtful and um, and sort of responsible about taking really a, a much broader view of of the pros and cons of, of a vast sort of spectrum of, of options here. And to sort of, um, you know, sort of respond specifically to two points that Kevin just made, um, you know, yeah, I bet Sony systems, uh, you know, uh, they wouldn't have been compromised had there been end-to-end -end encryption. They also couldn't have run a company. I, I can't think of any major corporation that is able to administer uh, a large staff uh, and coordinate without being able to access uh, the, their employees' emails. Uh, I suggesting they use only end-to-end -end encryption. Right, but I think whenever we sort of, um, whenever we're putting up the specific examples of this wouldn't happened or that that wouldn't have happened, it's important to sort of to give proper context of okay, if we're going to get into the specific. Would this made a, would this have made a difference? What actually happened here? Likewise, with the um, with the um, celebrity nude photo hack uh, in the um, uh, you know plea agreement uh, of that case, um, the individual who, per who perpetrated it said that it was largely a phishing scheme, right? And so the encryption would not have been um, protective of that case. So I think that sort of. Um, it's just important to understand the complexities across the spectrum. You know that includes in the, in the realms of, in the realm of human rights. Yes, it's important. Um, we see all sorts of examples of why uh, dissidents or um, or people who are in repressive regimes need strong end-to-end -end encryption. Um, on the other hand, we also see people who investigate genocide and mass atrocities that are coming up against uh, challenges of accessing and investigating those types of crimes, which have tremendous human rights implications. Um, we see civil rights consequences of this. Um, 
Um, so there's a case of a New York homicide um, in which an individual was actually headed down a path of wrongful conviction, and it was only by accessing, unlocking the phone uh, of the actual perpetrator that the information came forward um, that exonerated this individual. And so I just, um, I, I would sort of caution away from sort of saying, this is the most extreme solution, these are all the bad reasons why we shouldn't do that, Therefore, let's do nothing, right? I, I think it's important to sort of to take a, a step back and, and really consider the, the pros and cons a, across a very large spectrum. I wish the chair and ranking member of our Senate Intelligence Committee agreed with you. Matt, you want to take a stab at this, and we'll see if we have questions. So I think the only thing I would add to that is we've had a bunch of discussions up here of how you would build systems today in 2016 that protected Sony or protected uh, iCloud users and so on. But these aren't the issues. I mean, it's 2016. We're not worried about 2016. We're worried about 2021 and, you know, five years from then. We're worried about, about what kinds of systems we will be able to build. We don't have the answers to building systems that are completely resilient against the attacks that you brought up. But in a few years, we will, unless somebody puts forward some very ill-considered legislation that shuts down entire areas of security research, in which case we won't. I mean, we won't. Other countries will. Um, but we here in the U.S. could potentially cut ourselves off from all of those things. Um, so the only thing I would like to at least conclude this with is that no matter what people say, encryption is the one technology in the field of computer security that seems to work. Everything else is a disaster. And so the reason that I'm so concerned about this is that if we're going to do something that weakens that, we are heading to a very bad place. So are there uh, – yeah, go ahead. Okay. Yeah, can, can you just introduce yourself? Okay. My name is Courtney Rouch, I'm the Advocacy Director of the Committee to Protect Journalists. And I think there are a couple of points that are relevant. I mean, you know, I think you're bringing up the law enforcement cases um, that have to do with terrorism, but then it's also important to look at marginalized communities or at, you know, particularly susceptible communities. So that includes, for example, Muslims who might feel that they can't have the types of chats that they want to have or discussions or exploration of their political views if they can't do that safely because um, of surveillance and the ability to connect dots that create a picture that actually is not true. Um, or for journalists where we've seen we've seen um, the FBI, we've seen law enforcement impersonate journalists, we've seen them hack into journalistic systems. And I think just more broadly there's, um, and I'm just speaking for my personal opinion right now, a lack of trust in the Department of Justice because of the emphasis on, say, safety and security without recognizing that most of the, you know, terrorists, 9-11, Brussels, Paris, were under surveillance already or known to law enforcement, and so it really wasn't a failure of signals intelligence, it was a failure of human intelligence. And it seems to me that before we, you know, create some sort of unintended consequence, um, you know, about doing away with encryption, that we want to, you know, really grapple with how does law enforcement do a better job with the tools it has. And so I'd just like to, you know, bring that up because I think that, you know, in the whole, we also shouldn't be having this debate separately from the countering violent extremism debate because they're all related. And you can see, for example, the unintended consequences of you know, US government and other governments pressing social media firms to take you know, so-called terrorist content offline is pushing them into the encrypted areas that you guys don't have access to. So, so we're here, do you want to respond? Uh, 14 um, <laughs> there. I'm not sure if we can get them all. Um, 
Yes, uh, I welcome having all aspects of this debate and frankly this balance being considered as a result of this. I'd like to think though that it uh, ought to be properly characterized as far as the ability to access things is indeed, as I started with, courts making decisions based on the law and the Constitution, balancing the, the Fourth Amendment and the First Amendment in figuring out these questions. And so under existing rules, we already have in place a very robust and constitutional-based system to try to decide these questions. What we're, our perspective is, is that we're concerned that that's going away. I think one important question that we need to ask is, who gets to make a decision about whether government should have access to a particular device? Is it the individual? Um, that sounds great if it's you and you're thinking about, gee, I don't know, I don't have access to my data. It doesn't sound quite so good, though, when you're a victim of a crime or when a member of your family is a victim of a crime and suddenly that access is necessary. So I guess the question is, do we really want criminals and terrorists to be able to make this decision? Um, this is one of those things that economists call sometimes negative externalities when you know the, the business is polluting the stream and harming others. The government steps in and says, "Sure, it's maybe good for one purpose, but it's also having this other effect, and we need to take all those things into account." Um, you know, the same is true for insider trading, and child labor laws, and, and uh, all sorts of other areas. Antitrust. Um, why are technology companies different than all the other industries where the government said, "Look"? We need to take in more into account than just the decision that you're making about whether you want to be able to sell ads or you want to be able to sell your product as one which is unbreakable by the government. So the question is the individual or the courts? That would be the other choice. Do we want to reserve the power for a decision to be made based on law and constitution by independent judges rather than the individual who maybe if I could just make sort of a, a follow-up point as well in terms of sort of um, uh, the point about uh, inequality across communities, um, I think that this actually does get to one of kind of the central challenges here, and that is um, uh, whenever we allow sort of particular types of technology, and, and it's not just sort of the encryption itself, right? It's also it's the accessibility, it's the default, it's how sort of easy a device is to use, etc. Um, we know that those things as a normative matter are not equally distributed across communities, um, and so the reason why we decide that whether or not the cops get to look in your phone um, is based on sort of a neutral set of principles that apply to all of us and not whether or not you can afford uh, a $600 phone is because we want to preserve sort of um, the equality across communities. We don't do it perfectly, you know, but, but that's sort of, that's the aim here. Um, and so that can be mitigated somewhat by sort of free third-party apps. Um, the problem is is that there's also um, inequality of, of technological education and sophistication. Um, and so one of the reasons sort of in all different realms of, 